You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. The ball soon opened. General Meade, our brigade commander, rode up and told our colonel, E.B. Harvey, look out for this battery on your left, as that is about where they will aim for, and he rode away. But in three or four minutes, Meade galloped up again and said, Colonel, there they come. I want you to defend these guns. Just about then, the first discharge of cannon thundered forth by Captain Randall, whose guns opened before the infantry could discern the foe. After a few discharges, the 11th Alabama emerged from the bushes into the open, charging directly across Randall's muzzles, almost within speaking distance of the guns. Colonel Harvey ordered us to charge, and moving by the left oblique, we rushed down in front of our cannon almost to the Alabamians, who about faced and took cover in the brush. Those of us in front delivered a volley into their ranks. We were then recalled. My company, because of its position in the charge, was last to fall back to the original position. Randall's gunners, in their eagerness to cut down the Alabama boys, slewed their guns too much to the right before we were all out of line of their range, cutting Sergeant S.W. Lascom almost in two. Randall's shot naturally created some confusion in the company, but soon forming in line, it followed back to the original position. The Confederates reformed their lines and advanced on our guns a second time, in heavier column. But having gained wisdom at the cost of life in the first charge, we did not advance in front of our cannon to meet them. They were repulsed with grape and canister from Randall and buck and ball from the infantry. Four charges were made on the position held by the 2nd Brigade that day. The powerful divisions of Hill and Longstreet were on our front, who outnumbered our division three to one. During one of the stormy scenes, when both sides were falling at every heartbeat, a tall, able young man of the 11th Alabama rushed upon me with his bayonet at charge, thinking to kill the damned Yankee officer. But I parried his thrust with my sword, which in the encounter was broken off about ten inches from the hilt, when Bernie Small, of my company, seeing the disadvantage I was at, promptly came up on my left and bayoneted the Confederate within three feet of where I stood. On receiving a shot in my elbow, with my pocket knife I ripped the clothing from my shoulder and got one of the men to tie my handkerchief around my arm just below the shoulder. Then with a small stick, twisted the handkerchief, thus stopping the flow of blood. Turning, I saw General Meade, who rode up and asked, "'What's the matter?' I replied, I am shot in the elbow, and he told me to go to the rear, which order I obeyed cheerfully. Lieutenant Levi G. McCulty, 7th Pennsylvania Reserves, Meade's Brigade. 
The South Carolina Brigade, under the gallant Colonel Jenkins, commenced the attack. Kemper was on the right of Jenkins, Wilcox on the left, and Pickett, Pryor, and Featherston still farther to the left. One of A.P. Hill's brigades, Branches, was ordered as a support to Kemper and Jenkins. Kemper's, which used to be General Longstreet's old brigade, charged and took a battery. The enemy then brought up reinforcements, and the battery was retaken, and many of the old brigade captured with it. Jenkins, in the meantime, had taken a battery and still kept forward. His advance at this time was the most desperate I ever knew. A few hundred yards to the left of the battery he took was one that Wilcox was trying to take. Just in Jenkins' front was a very large force of the enemy's infantry, which he immediately engaged, when that battery on his left commenced on him with grape and canister. Thus he advanced in the face of terrible musketry fire, while at the same time enfiladed by artillery. Notwithstanding, he pushed on, charged the enemy, and drove them from their position with terrible slaughter. Wilcox during this time had been fighting desperately. He had taken a battery, but it had been retaken. But when Jenkins came in, they made another charge and held it. Jenkins' South Carolina Brigade lost more than half, and Wilcox's Alabama Brigade lost at least one half. The 11th Alabama, out of 10 officers commanding the companies, lost 8 killed and 2 wounded. The Palmetto Sharpshooters, Jenkins' old regiment, out of 375 men engaged, lost 44 killed and 210 wounded. Colonel Jenkins' own escape was almost miraculous. His horse was shot twice. A hole was shot through his saddle blanket. His bridle reins cut in two near his hand. An India rubber overcoat tied on behind a saddle had 15 holes through it, made by a musket ball and piece of shell. His sword was shot off at the point. Besides all this, he was struck on the shoulder with a grape shot, which bruised it severely, and was also struck on the breast and leg with fragments of spent shell. I met Jenkins just as he was coming out of the fight, and he was weeping like a child at the destruction of his brave, noble men. He told me that at one time, when he saw how fast they were falling around him, he stopped and prayed to God to send a bullet through his heart. He says, too, that at times, as he would ride up and down the line, his men would turn and give him a look as much as to say, We can go no further, but he would wave his hand to them, and they would again dash forward. Major Thomas J. Gorey, Staff, Major General James Longstreet. Thanks for tuning in to episode 165 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. With last week's episode, we set the stage for the Battle of Glendale, which took place on Monday, June 30th, 1862. We talked about the importance of the crossroads at Glendale with regard to the Union Army's line of retreat to the James River, and we talked about the defensive positions around Glendale, manned by units from Sumner's 2nd Corps, Heinzelman's 3rd Corps, and Franklin's 6th Corps. We also discussed George McClellan's shameful decision to absent himself from the battlefield, even though June 30th was going to be an absolutely crucial day for his army. 
June 30th would be a crucial day for the Army of the Potomac because if Robert E. Lee had his way, the last day of June would also be the last day of the Union Army. Lee was well aware that Glendale was a vulnerable bottleneck on the enemy army's line of retreat to the James, and to take advantage of the opportunity there, he had units converging on the crossroads from three different directions. Lee was confident that if he could hit McClellan's line at Glendale with enough power, he could break it and capture or destroy a significant portion of the Union Army. Last week, we talked about the three parts of the concerted attack that Robert E. Lee planned to make on Glendale on June 30th, as the formations he had launched into motion approached the vital crossroads from three different directions. Stonewall Jackson was to come in from the north, across White Oak Swamp, and attack the Union rear. At about the same time, Uget was to strike down the Charles City Road, approaching Glendale from the northwest. Then, while the Yankees were engaged with those forces, Longstreet and A.P. Hill would add their offensive punch by attacking from the west along the Long Bridge Road. As we said last time, the plan was a good one, but, as had been the case all week long, very little on June 30th went the way that Robert E. Lee had envisioned. On Monday, if Lee was to achieve the major victory and decisive result he was seeking, All three parts of his plan had to come together. But, as we saw in the last show, one part of Lee's plan broke down due to Stonewall Jackson's failure in his pivotal role, and then another part of Lee's plan broke down due to Uge's bizarre Battle of the Axes. We spent quite a bit of time last week talking about Stonewall Jackson's poor performance on Monday, despite the fact that there were several opportunities for him to take action. Union 6th Corps Commander William Franklin, who faced Jackson across White Oak Swamp, was as perplexed as anyone by Stonewall's inactivity. Franklin later speculated that, quote, It is likely that we should have been defeated had General Jackson done what his great reputation seems to make it imperative that he should have done, end quote. In other words, if Stonewall Jackson had shown the least bit of initiative on June 30th in carrying out his part in Lee's plan, then the Yankees at Glendale would have been in serious trouble. At the very least, he should have tied down the federal troops to his front and prevented them from reinforcing the western flank of the Union line defending the crossroads. But Stonewall didn't even do that. And as a result, four brigades, nearly 10,000 Federals, left Jackson's sector of the battlefield and ended up fighting Longstreet and A.P. Hill. For his part, Benjamin Uget, once he had finally won the Battle of the Axes, at last had clear marching down the Charles City Road. But then sometime between 2.30 and 3 p.m., as Uget approached the Union line from the northwest, he saw a ridge half a mile away across a creek, and the ridge was lined with Federals. The Union troops were infantry and artillery from Henry Slocum's division of Franklin's 6th Corps. Uget decided to bring up artillery to shell the enemy position across the way, but for some reason he only brought forward two guns, even though several batteries were nearby and available. Once the two rebel guns opened fire, Union counter-battery fire overwhelmed them. Uge never sent his infantry forward to challenge the Union line, 
since he deemed the enemy position straddling the Charles City Road to be too strong to assail head-on. He thought about sending troops off to his right to try to flank Slocum's position, but Huger never acted on that idea until it was too dark to accomplish anything. Not long after Huger arrived at that spot, facing Slocum, he must have heard firing off to his right, since Longstreet's men had started their attack by 4 p.m. As the sounds of battle increased in volume, Huger could tell major fighting was taking place only a mile off to his right. But even that didn't spur Huger to either send his brigades into the fight or send a courier to Lee to seek further orders. While Longstreet's and eventually A.P. Hill's men grappled with the better part of four Union divisions just to the south, Huger fretted and hesitated about what to do with the one enemy division to his front. Despite the sounds of a violent contest taking place a short distance, distance away, Huger never got a single infantryman into the fight all day. His inaction allowed Slocum to send one brigade off to bolster the Union line at Glendale late in the day. Robert E. Lee was clearly disappointed in Huger's performance on June 30th, and he rebuked Huger in his final report of the battle. And so Huger and Jackson were performing significantly below Robert E. Lee's expectations for them, although Lee didn't yet know that. But James Longstreet and A.P. Hill were giving Lee no reason to be displeased with them. The commanding general joined Longstreet after his morning meetings with Jackson and Magruder, and Lee was upbeat about the possibility that the upcoming battle would finally deliver the decisive result that he'd been seeking since the start of the campaign. Longstreet and Hill stepped off promptly in the early daylight hours of Monday morning, marching six miles before halting at 11 a.m. on the Long Bridge Road, one mile short of Glendale, after meeting Yankee pickets. In the early afternoon, Jefferson Davis rode up to the front of Longstreet's column, where he came upon Robert E. Lee. Davis decided to needle Lee a bit, using the same language Lee had used at Mechanicsville four days earlier. Davis asked Lee, Why, General, what are you doing here? You are in too dangerous a position for the commander of the army. To which Lee replied, I am trying to find out something about the movements and plans of those people. Then Lee turned the rebuke back on Davis, saying, But you must excuse me, Mr. President, for asking what you are doing here, and for suggesting that this is no place for the commander-in-chief of all our armies. Davis responded, Oh, I am on the same mission as you are. Longstreet joined Lee and Davis, and the three men chatted pleasantly, even as enemy artillery shells began to land uncomfortably close to them. Finally, A.P. Hill rode up and diplomatically but firmly ordered both Davis and Lee to the rear, and they obeyed. Those Yankee shells were in response to what Longstreet and Lee thought was the signal to begin the assault. You see, just before Davis came up, firing had been heard off to the north. This was sometime after 2 p.m., and Lee and Longstreet both assumed that it was Huger, since, as you guys will recall, Lee expected that Huger would open the battle from the Charles City Road at about the same time that Stonewall Jackson was descending on the enemy through White Oak Swamp. 
There's some debate among historians as to who actually fired the cannon heard by Lee and Longstreet, whether it was Stonewall Jackson's pointless bombardment or whether it was the lopsided gun duel on Huger's front. At any rate, Lee and Longstreet heard the firing and assumed it came from Huger and that it signaled the start of the Confederate attack. But Lee didn't yet order Longstreet to send his troops forward, since Lee wanted to wait until it was clear that Huger and he assumed Jackson had developed their attacks, pinning down the Yankee defenders in their sectors. Around 3 p.m., an officer who had been scouting down the river road well in front of Theophilus Holmes' division of Confederate troops reported to Robert E. Lee that Yankees in large numbers were crossing over Malvern Hill to the James River. At this report, Lee was concerned that the enemy army was slipping away, so he decided to ride down to the river road to see for himself. When he reached the spot, he saw that the report was true. Many Union troops were arranged in a defensive line at Malvern Hill, and an endless stream of wagons was crossing over the hill on their way to safety. Lee met with Holmes and ordered him to bring up his division and open fire on Malvern Hill with his artillery. Lee hoped at the very least that Holmes could disrupt the passage of the enemy's wagon trains on their way to safety. And so Holmes dutifully ordered his rifled guns forward, although these were just a half dozen in number, and they began shelling the strong Union position. But no sooner had the rebel cannon opened fire than enemy batteries on Malvern Hill replied, joined in short order by Union gunboats on the nearby James. The Federal fire, especially the big shells from the gunboats, destroyed or scattered Holmes' artillery and terrified his inexperienced infantry so that they fled in a panicked retreat. The panic was so bad that Jefferson Davis, who had followed Lee toward the River Road, felt compelled to try to rally the frightened troops, but the Confederate president soon gave it up as a lost cause. The Green Rebel soldiers were especially frightened by the big shells hurled by the Union gunboats. Davis said that the flight of the soldiers, quote, plainly showed that no moral power could stop them within range of those shells, end quote. In a moment of comic relief, as his troops retreated pell-mell past his headquarters, the nearly deaf Holmes emerged from the house and, cupping a hand to his ear, declared, I thought I heard firing. Unlike Huger and Stonewall Jackson to the north, there was little that Holmes could have realistically done to engage the Yankees at Malvern Hill. Holmes had fewer than 6,500 mostly inexperienced troops, while nearly 24,000 Yankees and a dozen batteries of artillery were arrayed on superior defensive terrain at Malvern Hill. Holmes called any idea of a Confederate attack, quote, perfect madness. Holmes was right, but Robert E. Lee's assessment of the situation led him to a different conclusion. At around 3.30, Lee apparently decided that if Holmes was supported by Magruder's 13,500 men, then their combined forces may be able to push back the Yankee defenders and, by increasing the pressure on the Union lines, increase the chances the Confederate army would achieve the breakthrough that Lee sought on June 30th. As y'all recall from the last episode, Lee, on Monday morning, had ordered Magruder to take his men and march them to support Longstreet and A.P. Hill. 
Magruder was making good time on that march down the Darbytown Road when he received Lee's new orders, instructing him to instead head down to the River Road, where Prince John was to deploy his men alongside Holmes' division. Lee diverted Magruder away from supporting Longstreet and Hill at Glendale because he must have thought there was already an adequate Confederate force to deal with the Yankees at the crossroads. Of course, Lee didn't know that neither Uget nor Jackson would bring any of their combined five divisions into the fight on Monday. Thus, Lee felt the added punch that Magruder could bring would be more useful at Malvern Hill than at Glendale. But Magruder's experience on the afternoon of June 30th would end up being a confusing sequence of orders, marches, more orders, and countermarches. Before the day was over, Prince John would receive no fewer than seven different sets of orders. Magruder dutifully tried to carry out his constantly evolving orders. Magruder has been criticized by some historians for his performance on Monday, but in reality, Magruder, certainly much more than Uget or Jackson, tried to conscientiously carry out Lee's orders on June 30th, even when those orders kept changing. By the end of the day, Magruder had marched his men to support Holmes on the River Road, then received orders to go to, to, go to Glendale with half his men, then new orders instructed him to take his whole force to Glendale. By the time he relieved Longstreet's troops on the front line at Glendale, it was 3 a.m. on Tuesday morning, and Magruder's day had been as exhausting as it was wasted. His men had marched and countermarched roughly 20 miles over 20 hours on the hottest day of the campaign. Magruder's 13,500 men could have been of best service to the Confederate cause if Lee had never diverted them to the river road, but allowed them to continue on to support Longstreet and A.P. Hill at Glendale. Though Robert E. Lee had sent Magruder to Holmes, it wasn't long before the Confederate commander wished Prince John was near at hand to support the attack on Glendale, since the real fighting of the day occurred in the woods and fields around the vital crossroads, with Longstreet and Hill taking on nearly half of the fragmented Union army by themselves. Considering the way that this week of battles had already gone for the Confederates, it's fitting that Longstreet's initial assault at Glendale occurred as a result of a misunderstood order. Lee had left Longstreet at 3 o'clock to go down and scout the river road, and when he returned shortly after 4 p.m., Lee found Longstreet's division engaged in battle. But Longstreet's assault wasn't part of a coordinated attack with Uget and Jackson, as Lee had hoped. Instead, one of Longstreet's new brigade commanders too eagerly tried to silence a pesky Union battery that had been bothering the rebels. 26-year-old Micah Jenkins, who had distinguished himself at the Battle of Seven Pines, was commanding a brigade in battle for the first time on June 30th. Jenkins' South Carolina Brigade straddled the Long Bridge Road, which meandered northeast to Glendale. Three-quarters of a mile in front of him, bisected by the road, was a line of enemy batteries supported by infantry. Nearest to Jenkins was Captain James H. Cooper's Battery B, 1st Pennsylvania Light Artillery. 
Around 4 p.m., Longstreet ordered Jenkins to silence the battery, by which Old Pete likely thought Jenkins would send forward his old regiment, the Palmetto Sharpshooters, to pick off the Yankee gunners. Longstreet had no thought that Jenkins was to bring on a general engagement, but the eager young South Carolinian sent his whole brigade forward against the line of enemy batteries. As Jenkins charged forward into the teeth of the Yankee position, he kicked off the Confederate assault that neither Lee nor Longstreet had ordered yet. Jenkins' brigade charged across the field at Cooper's Battery and the regiments of Truman Seymour's Brigade of McCall's Pennsylvania Reserves. The Union defensive fire was intense, and the South Carolinians charged three times before finally reaching the muzzles of the enemy cannon and engaging in hand-to-hand combat with the battery's infantry supports. The rebels finally forced Seymour's Pennsylvanians to withdraw, leaving the guns behind, but another unit of Federals charged forward and forced Jenkins' men to abandon their prizes. One Pennsylvania soldier was amazed he had lived through the carnage and wrote to his wife saying, quote, If there was one ball whistled past my devoted head that day, there was thousands. It appeared to me they flew in every square inch of air around me except the little space I stood in. As that quote Tracy read at the top of the show related, Jenkins also seemed favored by divine providence that day, as his life was spared despite his being conspicuous on horseback throughout the fight. His brigade, though, was dealt a severe blow, losing more than 500 of its 1,200 men, with the Palmetto sharpshooters being decimated in the multiple charges, losing 254 of 375 men engaged, or 68% of their unit. Longstreet may not have intended for his order to Jenkins to start the fight for the crossroads, but he quickly realized that the battle was on nonetheless. Old Pete ordered his other brigades to move forward and launch their attacks also, which they did around 5 p.m. James Kemper's Virginia Brigade was on Jenkins' right. They had been held in reserve at Gaines Mill and were anxious to prove themselves here at Glendale. They were so ready and eager that despite Kemper's orders to the contrary, they charged through 1,200 yards of woods and clearings at the double quick to close with the Yankees. During their rush, though, they lost their disciplined ranks. Kemper's Virginians burst onto a field near the house of a man named Whitlock, about three-fourths of a mile west of the Willis Church Road. The road was the lifeline for the Union Army, leading as it did south from Glendale to Malvern Hill and the James River, and so it was the Willis Church Road that Robert E. Lee hoped to cut on June 30th. As it happened, the headlong rush of Kemper's brigade hit a weak spot in the Union defense. The Whitlock House was at the far left of McCall's position, which was nearly half a mile in advance of Joseph Hooker's division off to his left. The gap between McCall's Pennsylvania Reserves and Hooker's force was large enough that a Confederate force might be able to penetrate to the Willis Church Road. If rebel reinforcements were then fed in to exploit the opportunity, Robert E. Lee would have his breakthrough, and five Union divisions would be cut off from the rest of McClellan's army. The Virginians clashed with two Union batteries and two regiments of Seymour's brigade around a makeshift fortification by Whitlock's house. One of Kemper's men remembered, quote, 
It looked like sure death to cross that field, but there was no stopping, and on we had to go, taking chances who should be shot down. The Virginians scattered the Yankee cannoneers and infantry, many of whom fled south, where their panicked flight wreaked havoc on Hooker's line. But Kemper's men had actually moved so quickly that no other Confederate unit had been able to keep up with them. Branch's brigade of A.P. Hill's division was to Kemper's right, but they weren't prepared and had received no orders to attack at the same time as Kemper. When they were finally sent forward, they drifted from Kemper's right to his rear. Meanwhile, Kemper and his men realized they were unsupported, far out in front, and extremely vulnerable to a counterattack. Sure enough, under McCall's orders, three Union regiments charged the Virginians. Kemper had been considering a withdrawal even before he was attacked, but now his men, still disorganized and winded from their sprint, were driven back through the woods from which they came, leaving more than 400 of their 1,400 men behind, either fallen killed or wounded, or captured. History never says goodbye. It just says... See you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produced the podcast My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. What's something you learned in history class that you feel wasn't the whole truth? Better yet, what's something you didn't learn at all that was omitted completely? That's what I like to call redacted history. I believe that all history, no matter how good or bad, needs to be told. There are wars, massacres, battles, and entire historical events that are just not in our school's history books. Have you ever heard of Mary Bowser? I didn't think so. My name is Andre White, the host of the Redacted History Podcast, the place where history's forgotten events, heroes, and villains get their story told one episode at a time. So come huddle around the campfire with me and get ready to hear the stories that you were robbed of. And get comfortable. We're going to be here a while. The Redacted History Podcast. Real history never dies. Stream the Redacted History Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. But as Kemper's brigade fell back, they met Branch's brigade to their rear. Branch's brigade was finally moving forward, and Branch decided to retake the ground around the Whitlock house that Kemper had lost. Meanwhile, the wounded George Pickett's brigade came up on Branch's right. Pickett's brigade would be led into battle on June 30th by Colonel John B. Strange. Branch and Strange led their brigades at the charge into the Whitlock clearing, where the Union defensive line had just been re-established. The Union line melted before the charging, yelling rebels. 
Branch and Strange spurred their men on in pursuit of the retreating Yankees, and the Confederates approached within a few hundred yards of the Willis Church Road. They appeared to be about to break through to the Union Army's lifeline, but then, as enemy batteries that had been hastily positioned to block their way fired desperately to slow the rebel advance, Federal reinforcements arrived in the form of Sedgwick's division. If you remember from the last show, Bull Sumner had sent two brigades from his 2nd Corps up to the northern flank of the Union line when 6th Corps commander William B. Franklin had thought the opening of Stonewall Jackson's big bombardment was the prelude to a major Confederate ground attack in that sector. Those two brigades were from John Sedgwick's division, and once it turned out that Stonewall's bombardment was a lot of sound and fury but signifying nothing, Napoleon Dana and Alfred Sully had marched their brigades back to Glendale just as fast as they could. Sweating and out of breath from their quick march back to Glendale, Dana's and Sully's regiments were fed into the battle as they arrived, and it proved to be just in time to stop the Confederates' progress. Branch and Strange tried to hold their ground at first, but then when Hooker sent in some troops to attack Strange's flank, the rebel retreat began. Slowly, the two Confederate brigades that had almost reached the Willis Church Road were forced back to the Whitlock House. While all of that was happening, another bitter struggle was taking place just to the northwest, to the left of Micah Jenkins' original position. There, Cadmus Wilcox sent his Alabama brigade down the Long Bridge Road. Wilcox could see Jenkins' fight around Cooper's battery, so he sent two of his regiments east of the road to help out. West of the road, Wilcox ordered two other regiments to attack Battery E, 1st U.S. Artillery, under Captain Allenson Randall. Randall's guns were supported by George Meade's Pennsylvanians. The fierce fighting for the battery here was what was being described in the quote I read at the top of the podcast. During the prolonged close-quarter combat between the Pennsylvanians and Alabamians around Randall's gun line, Meade was wounded and had to go to the rear. The rebels eventually gave ground, though, leaving behind more than 250 casualties from Wilcox's two regiments. By this time, however, McCall's division of Pennsylvania Reserves, which had already been badly battered at Gaines Mill, had been completely used up. Fortunately for the Federals, the next Confederate attack wasn't going to hit McCall's thin line, but would hit Phil Kearney to his right. The next Confederate brigade to attack was Richard Pryor's, which went in as Cadmus Wilcox was giving ground. Pryor advanced to Wilcox's left, heading for another Federal battery. That Federal battery was supported by John C. Robinson's brigade of Kearney's division. Pryor's Confederates had a hard time moving forward because of the difficult, heavily wooded terrain they had to cross. Pryor ended up having to feed his regiments into the fight one at a time, and they were torn up by blasts of canister from the Federal guns and scorching musketry from Robinson's infantry. One Yankee lieutenant wrote, quote, I never saw such slaughter. The head of the column seemed to sink into the ground. End quote. The men of the 14th Louisiana agreed, 
and afterward always referred to Glendale as the slaughterhouse. With Pryor's attack stalled, he called for help from the brigade of Winfield S. Featherston. Featherston took up a position on Pryor's flank, but he was also stymied and could advance no further. The two sides exchanged fire from these positions for the rest of the day. A Minnesota officer described the long afternoon's musketry as, quote, incessant, one terrific roar, no cessation or pause anywhere, end quote. With Pryor and Featherston stalled, Maxie Gregg's brigade was sent to extend the left of the Confederate line beyond Pryor and Featherston, but he encountered the same difficult terrain and an even stronger Union defensive position prepared to receive him. Gregg managed to get one regiment into line to join Featherston and Pryor's men, but he found it futile to launch any sort of attack. Meanwhile, to Pryor's right, as Cadmus Wilcox's men fell back from their bitter fight for Randall's battery, Charles Field's brigade from A.P. Hill's command entered the fray. As Field's Virginians headed toward Randall's and Cooper's batteries, Phil Kearney rode up to McCall. Both Union generals knew this was the critical moment of the battle. Kearney began rearranging the defensive line and told McCall, If you can bring on another line in a few minutes, I think we can stop them. McCall rode off toward Glendale and found some men to bring up, but as he was riding forward to find the best spot for his new line, he blundered into a group of Confederate soldiers. A private from the 47th Virginia seized McCall's bridle reins, and the unfortunate general later admitted to his wife that he, quote, was a prisoner before I knew where I was, end quote. McCall was taken to Longstreet, and since the two men had been comrades in the old pre-war 4th U.S. Infantry, Longstreet extended his hand in greeting. But as Longstreet recalled years later, quote, At the first motion, however, I saw he did not regard the occasion as one for the renewing of the old friendship. Kearney almost met the same fate as McCall at about the same time. He was riding to find the best spot for the reinforcements McCall was bringing up when he found himself in the midst of Field's Confederates. When a rebel captain saluted the general and asked what he should do next, the gruff, one-armed Kearney, who knew he was in a tight spot, snarled, Do, damn you? Why, do what you have always been told to do and then he slowly rode off the way he had come, leaving the bewildered rebel captain behind. Kearney escaped with his bluff this time, but under almost exactly the same circumstances, two months later at Chantilly, he would be shot and killed trying to escape. McCall and Kearney found themselves in the midst of the Confederate advance because Field's assault ground relentlessly forward. Part of Field's brigade overran Randall's battery, and meanwhile, the right flank regiments recaptured Cooper's battery, forcing the Yankees to flee. The rebels were able to retain control of these guns for the rest of the day. In fact, at the end of the day, the Confederates here would haul off 14 captured guns. Like Kemper before him, Field then pursued the retreating Yankees toward the Willis Church Road. In the process, though, he allowed his men to get far out in front of their supports, thereby opening themselves up to flank attacks. Sure enough, they were eventually attacked on their left flank by George Taylor's New Jersey Brigade of Slocum's Division. 
This was the brigade that Slocum had felt free to send, since he wasn't being threatened by Uget. With darkness descending over the battlefield and a strong Union force threatening his flank, Field halted his men and pulled them back to a safer position, and with that the fighting on the Confederate left slowly ground to a halt for the night. While Field was having his success driving the Federals beyond the batteries, William Dorsey Pender was leading his brigade into the fight on Field's right. Pender pushed his men through some scattered Federal units and advanced well past the Whitlock House, but then he came upon strong resistance as he hit the Yankees' last defensive line near the Willis Church Road. These Union soldiers were Sedgwick's men, and they were plugging the hole left by McCall's shattered division. The fighting here was violent. In the 22nd North Carolina, their flag was shot to pieces, and six color bearers went down. In the face of heavy fire to his front and increasing pressure on his right flank, Pender pulled his men back at dusk, unaware that Field had advanced even further on his left. James Archer took his brigade in at the same time as Pender on the latter's right until he brushed up against Hooker's division of Federals on his front and right flank. Archer's attack stalled, but his men held their position well to the south of the Whitlock House and in front of Hooker's force. As darkness was beginning to cover the battlefield, A.P. Hill decided to send his last brigade, J.R. Anderson's, down the Long Bridge Road along the same general route that Jenkins and Field had taken. But with the light failing, it was difficult to tell friend from foe in the confused, smoke-filled woods, and as a result, Anderson's advance quickly stalled. Once the firing ended, the woods and clearings were again haunted by the groans of the wounded and their pitiful cries. One Union soldier later recalled, quote, It was the saddest night I ever spent. We could hear calls from Mississippi, Georgia, and Virginia, mingled with those from Michigan, New York, and Massachusetts, end quote. Tallying up the casualties is difficult, since, with one battle following so quickly on the heels of another, many units didn't record their losses in each fight, but only totaled them for the whole campaign. Nevertheless, historians generally believe that at Glendale, the Confederates lost nearly 3,700 men, while the Federals lost about 3,800 men. The rebels captured a total of 18 guns, nearly the same number as McClellan's army had lost at Gaines's Mill. At Glendale on June 30th, the Confederates failed to win the decisive victory sought by Robert E. Lee. The rebels had pushed the Federal defenders to the breaking point, but in the end failed to accomplish what they'd set out to do, sever the Willis Church Road and cut off part of the Union Army. In the fight on Monday, Longstreet's and A.P. Hill's divisions were totally used up and would not be able to participate in combat operations again in the near future. At Gaines's Mill and Glendale, Longstreet had lost 4,600 casualties, or more than half of his original 9,000 men, while in three battles, Hill had lost nearly a third of his division, 4,000 out of 14,000 men. On the Union side, McCall's division was exhausted, losing more than 3,000 out of his 5,000 men in five days of campaigning. That evening around 8.30, as the firing at Glendale died down in the last throes of the final Confederate attack, 
McClellan and his entourage rode up to Fitzjohn Porter's headquarters at Malvern Hill. Refreshed from his cruise on the James and his fine dinner on the USS Galena, Little Mac arrived at the very end of the battle to check on the outcome of this dangerous day. Without even knowing the result, he had sent a message to Washington saying, quote, We are hard-pressed by superior numbers, end quote, and vowing that, quote, If none of us escape, we shall at least have done honor to the country. I shall do my best to save the army. Little Mac then brazenly requested more reinforcements be sent to him. His telegram was at once heroic and disingenuous, since he had not even been present at the fight to save his army, and he had left them handicapped by a leadership void when he failed to designate a commander in his absence. As it turned out, he also didn't face overwhelming numbers. Since Uget, Jackson, and Magruder didn't get into the fight, that meant that fewer than 20,000 Confederates ended up attacking more than 23,000 Union defenders on June 30th. That night, without any direction from McClellan, the Union defenders of Glendale pulled back from their lines and continued the retreat south to the James. McClellan had the gall to claim to his staff that he was surprised by this move, but he'd made it clear all week that the Army was seeking to reach the safety of the James as quickly as possible. And so in the absence of any clear orders to the contrary, his corps commanders were merely following Little Mac's lead and continuing the withdrawal to the river. And so once more the tired Union soldiers engaged in another wearying night march. They marched away from the battlefield in such a confused manner that some pickets were accidentally left behind to be captured, and an exhausted Baldy Smith, who had fallen asleep, almost met the same fate. The Union defenders of Glendale trudged south on the Willis Church Road, though few knew or cared the name of the road. As a lieutenant admitted, quote, What the road was, I cannot recall. I know simply that it was darkness and toil until we began climbing a hill and were greeted with advancing dawn. End quote. The hill they crossed was Malvern Hill, a little over two miles south of Glendale, and on July 1st it would be the scene of the last desperate battle in this grueling week of fighting. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is A Glorious Army, Robert E. Lee's Triumph, 1862-1863, by Jeffrey D. Wirt. From the time Robert E. Lee took command of the Confederate Army defending Richmond on June 1st, 1862, until the Battle of Gettysburg 13 months later, the Army of Northern Virginia compiled a legendary record of military achievement. And how that happened, really how Robert E. Lee shaped the army into a reflection of his own audacity and aggression, well, that's the subject of Jeffrey Wirt's book. Wirt follows Lee and the Army of Northern Virginia from the Seven Days to Gettysburg and analyzes Lee's imprint on that army. And since that relationship between general and army started here during the Seven Days, we're making it our book recommendation for this episode. So that's A Glorious Army, Robert E. Lee's Triumph, 1862-1863, to by Jeffrey D. Wirt. 
Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations at the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can sign up to become a member of the Strawfoot Brigade and support the podcast in that way, and also have access to 40 members episodes. We want to say thank you to Alan, Ellen, and Phil for joining the Strawfoot Brigade this past week. And thanks to Spiritwood Music for allowing us to use their song, Midnight on the Water, as the music you hear at the beginning and end of the podcast. You can find Midnight on the Water and other great songs like it by Spiritwood Music on their website or on iTunes, Amazon, and Google Play. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we look at one of the most misunderstood battles of the Civil War, Malvern Hill. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.